Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We've lost a lot of sports greats in this past year, including the unique John Chaney. We talk about John in this episode, which was taped before his death in January at age 89. Hope this conversation keeps alive his special spirit. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. Dick Girardi spent nearly 33 years as a sports writer at the Philadelphia Daily News. During that time, the newspaper was located in three different offices. Girardi never stepped foot in two of them. He was too busy searching gyms and horse tracks for stories. Today, we'll hear some of his favorites. Dick, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great, Todd, and that is a true story. Uh, in fact, my original sports editor, Mike Rathen, who hired me at the Daily News said, and I wrote this in my farewell column, he says, don't take this the wrong way. I've been there, I don't know, two weeks. He says, I don't care if I ever see you again. <laughs> just go write stories that that people will read, and so that's what I did. And uh, yeah, well, I was thinking about how we met, and obviously it was not in your office. Uh, no. <laughs> I, we I, we've known each other since 1992, um, and I know exactly where we were when we met. Unlike others, <laughs> we were at the Final Four in Minneapolis. And can you tell me the moment that you said, "Hey, are you Todd Jones?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we were looking to find out what was happening with Pete Gillen, the Xavier coach. Is he going to go to Villanova or not? And uh, you were the guy that was going to find out for us, me and Mike Kurt at the 92 Final Four in Minneapolis. Yeah, I was covering uh, – Pete Gillen was a Xavier coach. I was covering Xavier basketball for the Cincinnati Post. Uh, I'm trying to cross the street, and two guys, I don't even know who they are, <laughs> pull me aside. I thought it was like a Scorsese movie, and I was going to get whacked. Uh, <laughs> That was your introduction to me and Kern. Yeah, and and I've never been able to get away from both of you. (laughs) Nor nor would you want to, of course. (laughs) You know, when I think about that story, though, and and the idea of you not being in the office, I always think about how you were always looking for a good local angle. Um, I mean, you wrote, you know, more than 7,000 stories. And Barcelona Olympics, Penn State football, uh, but a lot of those angles that, that you wrote about were from your two favorite sports, right? College basketball and horse racing. What was it about those two sports that, you know, just struck a chord with you? Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, playing basketball. You know, I went to the University of Maryland uh, before they got good. Uh, and then Lefty Drizelle got there toward the end of my tenure as a student, and my oldest brother, I have three older brothers, uh, went to St. Joe's in in Philadelphia and brought back stories about college basketball, and that's kind of really what got me interested in it, playing, and then uh, I coached a little bit at the CYO level and the uh, middle school level, junior high level, and then when I got to Philadelphia, uh, as a horse racing writer, I actually got there because a new racetrack was opening on April 1 of 1985, Garden State Park. I got hired for that reason, but it was definitely an omen that the night the track opened uh, was the night Villanova beat Georgetown uh, in Rupp Arena. And so I'm in Philly. Right, I'm in Philly. I'm watching the game on TV while the, uh, the track was running at night. 
And about two years later, I said to a, a sports editor, then Brian Tolan, I said, hey, Brian, if you ever need anybody to cover a college hoop game, in addition to covering horse racing, which I was doing on a regular basis, I said, I think I can do that. So they sent me to a Temple-Rutgers game, which was my introduction to John Chaney. And we can obviously <laughs> tell some John Chaney stories here as we go. And then the next game they sent me to was uh, a LaSalle game against Holy Cross. It was my introduction to Speedy Morris and Lionel Simmons. Uh, so, yeah, that got me rolling. And the next thing you know, I was covering the NIT championship game that year in 1987. And 25 Final Fours, 31 Kentucky Derbies later, uh, you know, I got I got to basically do everything I ever could have. So horse racing and uh, and basketball, and I got to do both of them for uh, all those years at the Daily News. Well, when I think about college basketball and horse racing, I think they're very similar in some ways. There's a lot of shadows and a lot of whispering, <laughs> a lot of people in vinyl sweatsuits. A lot of talk behind the scenes. So I think in some ways you were covering the same sport. <laughs> There's no question. And I, I would get this all the time. People would go, man, you cover horse racing. Boy, that, that, there's, there's, that's, must, that's really corrupt. I said, hold on a second. I cover college basketball. That's really corrupt. Let's get real here. Here's the difference. In horse racing, nobody pretends that it's all in the up and up. Everybody knows there's some stuff going on. You just got to figure out what it is. In college basketball with the student athlete, everybody's <laughs> making it sound like it's, oh, boy, everybody's trying to do the right thing. I think well, I always felt like pro wrestling was more honest than big-time college <laughs> athletics because pro wrestling would tell you it's fake. Correct. You know, so that's, that's kind of honest, right? So, I mean— <laughs> Hey, look, I, I understood what it was and what it wasn't. I wrote about that part of it. And not only do you write about them, but for you, you got to write about them in Philadelphia. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I, it, I grew up in Baltimore, and it's like an hour and a half, two hours from Philadelphia. It might as well be in another time zone. It's so different in the way sports are looked at and the way fans react. When I first came to Philly, I, I actually couldn't believe it because it was so sedate in Baltimore, and there's nothing sedate about Philadelphia. And first, just getting a chance to read the paper and all the great writers we had in the mid-'80s when I got there. And we would have a paper that was like 120 pages. That's amazing. 50 pages of sports coming off the back. Uh, you'd see game stories uh, written by the great Phil Jasner who covered the Sixers, 1,500-word game stories. <laughs> and, and it was just, uh, it would take me an hour and a half just to read the sports section. But, yes, the passion in Philadelphia for sports is unchanged. And it's probably of the big cities in the country. It's the one where college basketball has meant the most, which is great for me. Look, it's a pro town, obviously, like every big city in the country is. But it's the one city where college basketball really meant something and still does. I mean, the legendary stories of just the Philly fans are just crazy. I mean, I remember uh, Jim Murray, the great L.A. Times writer, he, he once wrote that Philadelphia fans would boo a cancer cure. Well, I covered a, a Bengals Eagles game at the veteran, what was it called? Veterans Memorial Veteran, Stadium. Veteran Stadium. Yeah. Veteran Stadium. The vet. Yep. The vet. Everybody called it the vet. Yep. And the two things I remember is the AstroTurf uh, was horrible. literally like concrete. Yep. I could not imagine that they played on it. Yep. And the other thing I remember is that in the bowels of the stadium, they had a judge. Correct. An actual municipal judge who would hold court during the game 
with the fans that they arrested, right? That, that is correct. There was a court in the bo- in the bowels of the vet. I think it's the only time that ever happened in sports for the people that would get completely crazy. And yeah, you're right about the rug. They had to cancel a game one time because it was so bad an exhibition game. I remember there. I don't remember his name, but a Bears wide receiver where the the seams of the carpet, he actually tore both knees on the same play. I think his career ended. It was just just brutal. But yes, it is true. There was a prison in the basement of the vet. (laughs) And somehow we stayed out of it. But, you know, hey. (laughs) Yeah, as far as I know, none of our brethren ever ever ended up in it. (laughs) Well, the vet was a place of so many great memories. Not really, but (laughs) so many memories in Philly. But there's another place in Philadelphia I want to ask you about because it really, to me, is the heart of college basketball, and that's the palestra. You mentioned how Philadelphia – they just love college basketball because there's so many universities in that city. Um, the Palestra is the heart of it all. Tell me about the Palestra uh, where you covered so many games. So the Palestra was built in 1927. It's on the uh, campus of the University of Pennsylvania. It's right next to Venerable Franklin Field, which w- was just where the Eagles beat the Packers in the 1960 NFL championship prior to the vet being built. Um, and at one time, um, every Big Five game, and the Big Five for the people that don't follow, uh, Villanova, LaSalle, St. Joe's Temple, and Penn, uh, every Big Five game was played in the Plester. The Big Five was actually formed in the mid-50s. Um, the team's obviously been playing before that. So they played each other every year. And in Philadelphia in that time, in the mid-50s, even to the mid-60s, into the 70s, Winning the Big Five was as important as winning a national championship. It was that mm. big of a deal. It was like a and neighborhood thing. Conferences yeah. came on, and it, very much so. And most of the players were local. Uh, they rarely went anywhere. This is before college basketball became a national sport. It was still a regional sport. So almost every team had two, three, four local players on it. So not only did the guys play during the season, they were playing out of the season. You had legendary coaches, Harry Litwack at Temple, who was a Hall of Famer, Jack Ramsey at St. Joe's was a Hall of Famer. I mean, just one, uh, Raleigh Massimino at Philadelphia, then John Chaney at Temple, just one after the other. Chuck Daly coached at Pan at one point, another Hall of Famer. Uh, LaSalle was, had, had the great Tom Gola. That was prior to the Big Five, but it was one of the reasons the Big Five was formed. And uh, the games, now I got there after really the absolute heyday. I got there in the mid-'80s, so it had been 30 years Still, the games in there holds about 8,000, just one story. Uh, and when it's filled, you can not only not hear anything, you can't even hear the person next to you. So, yeah, I, I saw hundreds of games in there. And, and I went up there in the 70s as a college student, get a chance to see it, and, and then I to come back. A decade later and get to cover it for all those years. Uh, Absolutely a thrill. And yeah, no better place to watch a basketball game. I covered a lot of uh, college basketball in the early 90s in Cincinnati, and I would travel a lot to Philadelphia. That's kind of how we got to be really good friends. Yep. And, um, but the thing is, the games that I covered were never really at the Palestra. They were always, they were always at some other places. And I always wanted to be in the Palestra. So one night I actually just bought a ticket and went to a Penn Princeton game in the Palestra, and I stood up in the back against the back wall behind a basket, <laughs> and it was it was like being in an oven, an yep. oven that had cannon fire going off at all times, and I still remember, just it it was unbelievable the heat and the noise, 
and the basketball was so intense. It was just something you, you cannot uh, manufacture. It was just organically great. Now, I, I did the uh, color on Penn State basketball, and they made the really wise decision of playing two home games in the Palustra in recent years. They played Michigan State there a couple of years ago, and then last season played Iowa. It was in early January, and it was it was warm outside for January. Mm-hmm. You can imagine what it was like inside the Palestra, which has never had air conditioning. The vents are, you know, we're talking 1927. It was they had, they had to bring fans in to cool the place off and to keep the floor from getting water all over. The other thing I remember about the game I attended was I remember looking down and seeing you and you were literally sitting right behind Pete Carrill, the Princeton coach. I'm thinking he's right behind the coach and Carrill's like ripping at a sweater and messing his hair up and screaming and going nuts. I think at one point he even turned around and talked to you. He does. Yeah, that, that was one of the other great perks of covering games at the Palestra. It's the only place where the press table, as you said, was literally right next to the benches. And most of us were next to the visiting bench. So Pete Carroll, and I remember this specifically, Todd, I don't know if it was that game or another game. But at one point he turned around to me and he says, they're cheating us. You know they're cheating us and you have to write about it. And I'll be reading just to make sure you do it. But yeah, you actually talk to the coaches in the middle of the game. And I had that regularly. So I had coaches go, what do you think we should change the zone here? I said, my man, you're on your own. I can't help you with that part. That, that's, that's, that's your call. Speedy used to, he used to go berserk uh, when they had games in there. And he, he was yelling and screaming. And Speedy Morris. Yeah. Speedy Morris. One time, one of his assistant coaches said, uh, said, hey, uh, hey, coach, I think we should go zone here. So he says, all right, we go, they won't go zone. They go zone. The other team hits a three. He goes, zone my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you can hear all that stuff and, and see it and yet interact with the coaches. And, yeah, that was one of the many great perks of covering games at the Palestra. That has since changed, unfortunately. They moved the press to the other side. But, yes, for years and years and years, we were sitting there. Roy Williams was there. I remember one night, he, I mean, he had some legendary coaches been through there and they have you ever get a chance to come to philly get on a concourse and just wander around uh i mean we're talking will chamberlain played there as a high school player kobe bryant played there as a high school player and some of the great college players in history have come through the pluster at one time or another any other specific games or moments that stand out to you yeah the, the one probably that sticks out to me uh penn princeton again uh penn had a really good team princeton was good but not as good as penn Penn is leading the game uh, at one point, I want to say 33 to 9. I'm not sure I'm going to get the score right, but anyway, you know, it's it's basically, it's over. And it's an early game, and I I went to watch the first half, and I had the late game Temple at St. Joe's. So I I left because I had to cover the the 9.30 game. Well, anyway, Princeton comes back and wins the game 51 to 50. At the, I mean, possible, right? I mean, they were they, mm. they, they hadn't couldn't score in the first half. Well, the last game of that season was Penn at Princeton for the Ivy League title, and Penn crushed them. And Fred Dunphy, the Penn coach, had the great line. He says, "I felt like Bill Buckner, except I got another chance." <laughs> that was the other thing. The coaches were just characters, right? You, you uh, mentioned you yeah. mentioned Speedy Morris. I can't help 
but hear Speedy Morris and think about the night that he brought his LaSalle team into Cincinnati. <laughs> and the Daily News had me freelance a story yep. uh, about, for them. <laughs> and so I wrote a LaSalle angle story, and one of the guys on the scores table next to Speedy said Speedy was yelling so loud at the ref that his gum flew out and landed on the scores table. And I thought, that's rich. And so I immediately used that as a detail on my story. And Speedy wrote me a letter, type typewriter, wrote a letter and sent it to me protesting that that did not happen. But I had a trusted source on Gumgate. <laughs> yeah, it probably happened. That sounds like something he would do. He would, he split his pants one night out at Villanova going crazy. <laughs> the second half with his pants split in two. Yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff. And, of course, of course, John Chaney was completely insane. Yeah. Uh, but in a good way. I mean, just, right. a, just a wonderful guy. Chaney, after he lost, uh, Todd, every time he lost, and he had some really expensive ties. I mean, we're talking Armani stuff, $200 ties. He would never wear the tie again. So he would give it away, like most of the time, it would be to Mike Kern, who was the beat writer for Temple through much of Cheney's career. And Cheney was great anytime, but he was always best after losses. And I remember one night, in the gar- he was in Madison Square Garden. I was covering a game for some reason. I don't know where Mike was. And it, they lose the game. I go into the locker room, and he says, hey, come on over here. i got to show you something. I said, all right, coach, what do you got? He shows me a picture of, like, five guys' legs sitting on a bench and they're clearly basketball players right and he says he looks at, he says this picture is racist i said what do you mean john he says he says uh, he says i went to this, the guy who painted this picture he says this is a racist picture he says they're all they're all the white guys they're all only white guys in the picture the guy who painted the picture says john all the black guys are on the court oh yeah cheney how many years was cheney at temple Boy, uh, I want to say like 30? 25. Now, keep in mind, yeah. he had a long coaching career at Cheney State before he ever right. came to Temple. Um, right. And 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 as John, only he could tell that story. I would not be able to tell the story. Keep in mind, that was John Cheney's voice telling that story. <laughs> but he's accusing the artist of being racist. It was it was clear. And John's laughing the whole time he's telling the story. But yeah, and and when John when John left, he had the like the greatest uh, line ever. Uh, the, the old set him up Joe line from uh, Frank Sinatra song, where he just excuse me while I disappear from his press <laughs> conference. And yeah, John quite a character. Well, I he used to walk to work, right? He lived in a row house in Philly, didn't he? He lived in Maniunk, uh, right near Speedy. Uh, he couldn't walk to Temple. It wasn't far, but yeah, he, he didn't walk. He grew up in South Philly, and, and he grew up in a time uh, when the Big Five was not recruiting black players. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the city player of the year the same year in high school, the same year Tom Gola was the, the Catholic League player of the year. John was the public league player of the year. He had to go to Bethune-Cookman in uh, in Daytona Beach, Florida, because at that point time, it's hard to believe in Philly, but there were no black players on any of the teams in, in Philadelphia until the mid-50s. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, think about that, how sad that was. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have one uh, treasured moment uh, with John Chaney myself. I was in Philadelphia on a trip, and I lined up uh, a, a chance to go visit with him. And they would practice at like 5 in the morning, yep. some ridiculous hour, uh, before the kids all went to classes. And so Chaney invited me to come to his office. And so I go to the, the arena and I go to his office, and it's literally like a broom closet. It, there was like wood paneling, no windows. 
There was just piles of stuff everywhere. I mean, some of these coaches, you go into their office and it's like the Taj Mahal, you know. <laughs> you go into this thing and it was so tiny. And we sat there for two hours and talked mostly about the OJ trial. <laughs> it sounds like John. Yeah, He just yeah. went off on his tangent about the O.J. Simpson murder trial, and I couldn't get him to stop, and I couldn't control the interview to try to get him. I'm trying to write about John and do a profile, and he was going on, and yet I didn't want him to stop because it was fascinating just to hear him talk about this. And anytime you could get someone like John to, to go off, you know, go off script. It was just, it was a moment you just couldn't believe. He would say anything. I, I went in there one day to do a story on Mark Jackson when he came to the Sixers. He's one of, one of John's players. We ended up going off, off on a tangent. He ends up, we spend the whole time, he shows me how to cook corn in a microwave. I mean, <laughs> really? But yeah, that, 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 you never knew what you were going to get. And that was the beauty of it. And I, I remember one time I called him for sign. I don't remember what it was for anymore. And he, he, I didn't even ask a question. He talked for like 15 minutes. He says, what do you want anyway? I said, I, I'm, I'm good, coach. <laughs> but Gotta yeah, that was the, him. <laughs> the crustiness, but the, the heart was always underneath the surface, right? He, yeah, he always told me, he says, look, you can you can be as tough as, as you want, but at some point you got to put an arm around your players. And that's what he did. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. You know, when I think about Philadelphia and all the great players and all the great coaches, uh, there's a name that, unfortunately, you know, it's been so many years that you don't hear mentioned anymore, but I always recall it, and that's Hank Gathers. Yes. Um, Hank Gathers, a Philadelphia legend who went on to Loyola Marymount and, and you know, had the heart issue and, and died on the court in 1989 or 90, 1990. 1990. Yeah, March 1990. Yep. Um, and I think about the great story you did, um, the 25th anniversary story. And can you tell me a little bit about Hank Gathers and your experience with that story in particular? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably would be in my all-time top five. You mentioned I wrote 7,000 for the paper. I think I, it got probably more reaction than any story I ever did. Uh, so it was, It was. Uh, we did it in, I want to say, late February of 2015, as you said, the 25th anniversary of Hank's death. He played for Loyola Marymount. For the people that don't remember, in 1990, they were setting scoring records that are just unsurpassed. They would they were trying to get a shot up every five seconds. I mean, they were putting up 120, 130, 150, just crazy numbers for a 40-minute college game. Shot threes with impunity, pressed the whole game. And Hank Gathers was their star center, and along with Bo Kimball, had gone to Dobbins Tech in North Philly and won the city championship uh 
back when he was in high school and sadly, uh, as Todd said, passed away during a uh, conference tournament game playing against the University of Portland. Oddly enough, uh, the guy who he made his last dunk over was Eric Spolster, who's the coach at the Miami Heat. He played on that Portland team. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Wow. So I, so uh, my sports then sports editor, Chuck Bousman, said, hey, you know, we need to do something on the 25th anniversary of Hank Gathers. I said, absolutely. So, I, you know, I went back, and I was actually, the night it happened, I was in Albany, New York, with that great LaSalle team, Lionel Simmons, Doug mm, Overton, yeah. who was a high school teammate of Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. And they were winning their conference semifinal game when the word got to press row. This is pre-cell phone. It, somebody got to me from the office. Hey, look, Hank, Hank Gathers has died. Can you get some reaction from the LaSalle guys, many of whom had played with or against him in high school? Uh, and so I, I kind of framed it from that night on. Uh, it was just such a, a, a heart-rending time. The NCAA tournament's about to start. Loyola's going to play in it. LaSalle's going to play in it. So I went back uh, in, in researching the story. I found out where Hank was buried. That's actually how I started the story. He's buried not far from the Philadelphia airport. Then went back and visited where his funeral was. And I, I attended the funeral. I wrote about it. And then just kind of pieced it all together, found out that he had a, a son who was five or six years old at the time mm. who had come into a lot of money and as he said to me, spent it unwisely, ended up spending five years in jail, but it turned around his life and just kind of pieced all that together for this story about this real Philadelphia legend who died way, way too soon. Uh, he scored 46 points that year against Shaquille O'Neal uh, down wow. at LSU. That, that's how good he was. Uh, I mean, it's hard to believe against Shaq. So. Yeah, that, that's how good Loyola was. That was a legendary game on CBS. But, yeah, that, that's uh, it was a difficult story to write, uh, but a memorable story for me. because It brought back so many memories because I was so close to it at the time. And then you go back and revisit it, re-talk to people. I spent a lot of time with Bo Kimball and Doug Overton. Talked very briefly to Hank's mother, uh, Lucille Gathers. And you could see to this day, 25 years later, it was still so raw for her. Mm, that's oh. those are all. I mean, when you have to to recount something like that and and revisit, um, you you feel like you're kind of like you shouldn't be doing this, but yes. then when you do it, I think sometimes people are so happy that you are doing it, uh, and and so that they're not forgotten. Yeah, I I never had the uh, opportunity to see him play in person. Um, there was a, a time where he had a heart episode before the one that that he passed away from. That's right. Yep. Um, and they were traveling around. Uh, the, the the trainer would have a defibrillator on the bench. And uh, I remember I had a story where they came to Cincinnati and and the trainer forgot the defibrillator. And um, so they played that night with no defibrillator in the, in the building and there was no ambulance at the building. And so it was kind of an eerie story uh, that, you know, this could have happened that, that night in the Cincinnati right. Gardens. They, right. Yeah, there's so many so many moments in, in the NCAA tournament that stick with us, especially from the 80s and 90s when the, the tournament really blew up on television. And and you covered 25 Final Fours. You're you're in the U.S. Basketball Writers Hall of Fame. You were the president of the association at one point. Um, you saw so many major basketball moments, March Madness moments. Which ones stick out for you? 
Yeah, I, probably a couple. The, uh, Gordon Hayward was literally dribbling right in front of me uh, when he took that shot against Duke for Butler, that if it had gone in, uh, the half-court shot would have won the championship. It looked like it was going in. It did. I, I had that great view where he was, uh, you know, I, I could, you know, when you're behind the ball and you can look at the, you can look at the trajectory and you're going, hey, that has a chance. And, of course, it just missed that one. And, and for me, the, the next one for the Final Four is obviously the Chris Jenkins shot for Villanova in 2016. Uh, uh, we, we had a, I don't know, between the Inquirer and us at the time, we'd kind of combined staffs at that point. We had, I don't know, 12 people there, whatever. So I was writing a column that night, and I had written the column, I don't know, most of it, on the theory that Villanova was going to win the game because they had taken control of the game late and like a 10-point lead. And as you know, when you're sitting on deadlines, and that was a deadline game for me, uh, you got it right while the game's going on. So I have it done, and everything is good. Now all of a sudden, North Carolina makes a couple crazy plays. Page hits, that's why Marcus Page hits a crazy three. It's a tie game. And I'm thinking, all right, well, there's, there's only one really bad thing that can happen here. Uh, if North Carolina steals the ball and scores, then I'm totally screwed. I got nothing because I got like two minutes left. But they don't steal the ball. Villanova gets it in. Uh, Ryan Archidiakono, their point guard from the Chamonix High School, which is right down from where I live, flips it back to Chris Jenkins and the ball's in the air and the buzzer goes off and it's in. And I have like two minutes to file this column. Uh, and the good news is I already have Villanova winning. I had a lead. I changed about two things. And then I had another hour to write it correctly, uh, <laughs> which, which I was able to do, go out on the court and talk to some players and put some perspective on it. And I remember calling into the desk and I said, look, how much space do I have? They said, just keep writing until you get tired. I said, sounds good. <laughs> you <laughs> always good. want to hear that as a writer. Yeah, that's kind of how we did it back <laughs> Well, my, my favorite moment from the Final Four involving you, I think it has to involve, it's about the poker games that would go oh, on on Lord. Sunday nights <laughs> yep. before, because the national championship game on Monday was at 6. Uh, the press conferences on Sunday were in the morning. Everybody would knock their stories out, and then you had a long night. And I right. remember walking in to a hotel room. <laughs> I think it was in Indianapolis. 1997. You, you and some guys, um, um, I won't name names, but guys from the East were playing a round of poker. Mm-hmm. This is probably – I don't know, three in the morning. Uh, It had to be, yeah, no doubt. And uh, these two college-age kids wandered in, and they (laughs) stood around the table and looked like, you know, they were, like, kind of mocking you guys. And you said, you guys want to play? And they thought, that you know, they're all full of themselves. They sat down. And you and your poker buddies proceeded to wipe those guys out within minutes they, they left. Gone. All their money was gone. All their pride was gone. They had to leave. And that's a Final Four moment that I'll always remember involving Dick Girardi. Yeah. No, no. That's why I stayed and watched those guys get wiped out. So so gambling, gambling leads us into horse racing. Yes, sir. The Final Four ends in April. Yep. It's early May, and you go down to Louisville, Kentucky for the Kentucky Derby. I think you covered – Almost 40 in a row or something. I did 31 in a row. 31 uh, in a row. Yeah, I've been to 33. 30. <laughs> Every one from 1987 to 2017. I had the pleasure of covering a few. Uh, I was born and raised in Kentucky, so it meant a little something to me. Um, can you describe what the Kentucky Derby is like? Because for me, 
it was like a slice of Americana. It always felt like it was 1917. Uh, you're in the bowels of this old ship or something when you're walking around the grandstand. What, what was it like for you to cover the Kentucky Derby? Right. So I'll never do it as well as Hunter Thompson. And obviously everybody needs to go read Hunter Thompson's magazine story <laughs> when he and Ralph Stedman ended up at the Derby. I mean, there's nothing like it. And so there, there's a hundred and uh, say twenty five thousand people there on Friday for the Kentucky Oaks, and one hundred seventy five thousand or whatever for the Derby on Saturday. And you, know, you growing up in Kentucky, I mean Louisville's a small town uh, that just blows up that one weekend a year. And I, I had certain rituals that that I performed after a while because I was mostly just looking to cash a bet by, by derby time. <laughs> yes, I was there to write stories. I was always prepared. I went out early, did my work. But while I was out there, I was also asking questions of different trainers like, you know, what's going on with your horse? You know, what about what about that guy's horse? Really you know, doing your homework. Yeah. So I, yes, I was writing. Yes, I was being paid to be there. Uh, I was flown down and my hotel room was paid for. But yes, I was also looking to potentially hit the superfecta. There are all these there's just all these people coming from literally all over the world. Money, uh, celebrities, uh, infield filled with just. I mean, people who got somehow would get drunk at, at 8 a.m. and stay drunk until midnight. I, I don't know how people did it, but that, that that was the Derby experience. And they had the old grandstand. They tore that down in the uh, about 2004. Mm-hmm. Then the new one went up, and we had the great press box up there where you were looking down over the finish line. I said to a couple yeah. of my friends, I said, we ain't going to be here long. Nope. And we weren't. <laughs> Uh, they they got us out of there, sent us downstairs. That's where Michael Jordan and Tom Brady and those guys hang <laughs> right, out right. in what's called the mansion now atop the, the grandstand at well, Churchill that, Downs. That press box, you could literally turn around and place a bet. It's the one sport where if you don't participate, uh, you don't understand. It. It, because if there's no gambling, there's no game. Everything is funded through gambling. And people used to say to me, well, that's a conflict of interest. I said, no. I said, I, I became... I was understanding of horse racing first through the gambling lens. If you don't understand the gambling part of it, you really don't understand the game. So yes, they had a betting window in the uh, in the grand st- in the press box. Now let's be honest. You you won a ton of awards uh, covering horse racing. You knew what you were writing about. You won the uh, 2004 David Woods Award for the coverage of the Preakness. Three-time Joe Hirsch Award for coverage of the Breeders' Cup. Five-time winner of the Red Smith Award for the Kentucky Derby coverage. I mean, you knew your stuff. I I wanted to ask you about 2006 when you won the Eclipse Award for a series that you wrote about Barbaro. Um, You know, that was a story that seemed to go way beyond horse racing. When Barbaro won the Kentucky Derby, and then the Colt suffered that tragic injury in the Preakness. Um, tell me about Barbaro and and why that seemed to touch a nerve beyond just the horse racing fans. So starting in 2004, uh, Philadelphia-based horses won the Derby twice, uh, the Preakness twice, and the Belmont Stakes. First it was Smarty Jones, then it was the Fleet Alex, and then finally, as you're saying, Barbaro in 2006. So... And it was the most impressive Derby victory I saw live, uh, Barbaro in 2006. But what what made it so impressive? You don't do what this horse did. He was, uh, the pace was really fast. He was sitting very close. Typically what happens in that spot, Todd, is horses, they might win, but they won't be running their best at the finish. 
Well, this horse is running faster at the finish than he was at any time in the race. And if you kept watching after the finish line, he, he galloped out 20 lengths ahead of the field. It was just an awesome performance. And you're thinking, you know what? The, the other Philadelphia horses won two-thirds of the Triple Crown. This horse is going to win all three. Uh, so you go to Baltimore and you're thinking, all right, it's just a question of how much is he going to win by. And then 100 yards into the race, uh, his, and still it's unclear exactly how it happened. Uh, some have speculated that he was stepped on from a horse from behind. But whatever, his right hind ankle was just shattered. I mean, to the point where... I mean, think of uh, think of a, an ice cube and somebody just hits it. It was just mm. shattered into that many pieces. Mm. Uh, and I knew instantly it, that it was really bad uh, because he, the horse barely made the finish line the first time. Then, of course, they ran the race, and I rushed down to the track. And you were hoping they, they put up what we call it the, the green screen where mm. often horses are euthanized right on the track. This was Barbaro, though. This was a horse that the Jacksons wanted to try to save, would have been put down immediately because the injury was that catastrophic. And the very next day, we're at the New Bolton Center, not far from where, ironically enough, the Jacksons lived. And Dr. Dean Richardson, the surgeon who performed the surgery that next day, that Sunday on Barbaro, after they'd taken him from Pimlico, uh, said, said, how often do you see injuries like this? And his answer was never. He says, because they usually don't make it to me. Uh, mm. But he did everything he could. They repaired all the fractures. Uh, for a while, it looked like it was going to have a happy ending. Uh, he ended up getting uh, a, a hoof disease called laminitis, uh, mm -hmm. which effe eventually affected all four of his hooves. They put him down in, in late January of 2007. And, and, you know, I wrote stories about him all that all that summer and fall, and it was incredible, the reaction. And then when he actually, the horse was put down, I got, I got uh, emails from people that were not horse people at all. They were people who had pets at home, who had lost their pets, so, and everybody could relate to it. It was like this mm. was, it, it wasn't just as this was a derby winner and a potentially an all-timer. There's no telling how good this race, he could have been as a racehorse, but everybody felt like it was their pet. Hmm. That that's why it became such a gigantic story, and I think I, I didn't count them, but I think I got more emails on the story I wrote the day the horse uh, was put down than any story I wrote in thirty three years. Yeah, it's like they become like part of you, you know. Very much so. And the thing is, like you mentioned about how his performance was so great, I think sometimes when people say, "Well, Thorbrez, they're not." You know, they talk about it. It's a sport, but they're not athletes. But I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> if you've ever stood next to these, they're just, they're just magnificent, these horses. that You stand next to them. They have a presence, and they have these skinny little ankles and these big, powerful way that they run. And and to see those horses, like, work, even just working out in the morning in the backstretch of the Kentucky Derby and the— you know, it's just something mystical about seeing a, a thoroughbred. Well, you know, I mean, the issue with racehorses is what happened to Barbara. Uh, these are 1,000-pound animals who can run 35 miles an hour on legs that are smaller than ours. It what makes them, It's what makes them so fast. It's also what makes them so fragile. Well, another horse that didn't suffer that type of injury but really grabbed the people's attention around the nation and became like a character was one that we both love and— uh, Smarty Jones in 2004, he wins the Derby, he wins the Preakness, he's going to the Belmont, he's a Philadelphia horse, 
Tell me about Smarty Jones and and how he captured everybody. So, yeah, it's a Philadelphia horse to the point where he was stabled at what was then called Philadelphia Park, which would at best be a triple-A track, maybe even double-A. You know, horses don't come out of there to run run the derby, much less win. But he was a Pennsylvania bred, uh, trained by John Service, local guy, grew up in West Virginia, but had been in Philly forever, owned by— Owned by Roy Chapman and his wife, Pat, Philly people, uh, ridden by Stuart Elliott, Philadelphia Park jockey. And he wins these two incredible races at Philadelphia Park in November of 2003. And you're thinking, God, this horse is way better than just a local horse. And John Service, the trainer, realized that he put him on the road to the Derby, ran him once in New York, three times in Arkansas, won the Arkansas Derby, came to Kentucky. And, and Todd, you'll remember that day. There was an absolute monsoon mm-hmm. about two hours before the race. The track was a quagmire. Yep, yep. And he comes running through the quagmire, wins by almost three lengths. And he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And all of a sudden, I'm covering this incredible story of this horse from the wrong side of the tracks that's won the Derby. He goes to the Preakness, wins by the biggest margin in the history of the race. Uh, what we call it at the racetrack, runs out of the TV set. Literally couldn't see him if you're watching. on. You couldn't see the other horse if you're watching on TV. And heads for the Belmont. And every day before those three weeks, I'm out at the track at 5 in the morning because they closed the track to all the horses but him. They let him come out there by himself because they didn't want him, any other horses getting in the way. They didn't want any accidents. They didn't want anything happening. Uh, but as the training went on for the Belmont, the wear and tear was starting to get to the horse. You could watch him. It was harder for him to warm up in the morning. He was starting to get a little arthritic. Uh, but they, they thought they could get through and still win the Belmont and win the Triple Crown, which hadn't been won since 1978. And they had the biggest crowd in the history of Belmont Park. Oh, there were 20,000 people. Uh, it was insane. I mean, Belmont Park, for people who haven't been there, is just gigantic. But that day, you could hardly move. Because people just grasped on the story. Of course, half of Philadelphia was there to watch the horse run. He comes in at the top of the stretch with a four-length lead. The place is going crazy. I'm looking through by binoculars, and I don't like what I see because I can see the stride start to shorten. I can see what I'd seen in the mornings that I was hoping he could get through one more race. Well, the last uh, 100 yards, he gets past, loses to a horse called Birdstone by one length. The rest of the field's like eight lengths behind. Birdstone was more just, uh, he just happened to be the horse that was still running. Uh, Smarty Jones was the best horse by far. He was denied the Triple Crown, should have won it. Never ran again, uh, had arthritic uh, knees and ankles, was never able to train again. Uh, but he just missed being nine for nine, unbeaten Triple Crown winner. And if he had won the Triple Crown, I mean, there he'd be an all-time, all-timer. Uh, but yeah, he just missed by that one length. And just unfortunate. It was circumstance. And in horse racing, a lot of times, circumstance decides the result, uh, not really who the best horse was. Well, I distinctly remember being in the press box, and Smarty Jones is coming around that turn, and the the noise from that record crowd was yep. just deafening. And when Birdstone passed Smarty Jones, it like went silent. Like I remember the, yep. the, the, the all that noise just went away and everybody was just crushed. Even in the press box with the cynical sports writers who aren't supposed to feel anything or get, you know, roots. That was like the saddest press box I was ever in because everybody wanted to write that story 
of Smarty Jones winning the Triple Crown. And I, I always remember the silence that happened immediately. This story transcended oh, horse racing. So. They sent yep. a guy like me to the Belmont. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody was there. Oh, yeah. so, so I'm there in the scene. They were, I remember there were nuns visiting the stall. Correct. Yep, that's and right. There were, there was a guy with a guitar playing a song <laughs> about Smarty Jones that he had oh, written yeah. um, to the to tune of Born to Run. I, I'm sure Springsteen wants a cut. But, uh, you know, they had songs written about him, none showing up. And it was just this Americana scene of this horse brought everybody together, right? Yeah, no doubt. And th- this horse's story had so many twists to it. Um, you know, there are a lot of times it's, it's not like sports where the better team almost always wins, uh, generally. I mean, there's enough time, you, a, a football game, a basketball game, you can have a bad quarter or a bad five minutes. There's enough time. The better team will come back and win. Yes, there are upsets. But in horse racing, the best horse often doesn't win because it happens in such a quick time frame. You know, Belmont stakes less than two and a half minutes. If a couple things happen during the race, that can ultimately change the result. So, yeah, to me, he, he's always a triple crown winner to me. Well, to me, the best stories in sports aren't always about the result. It's not always the win or the loss. Yep. It's sometimes it's the story, it's the people around it. Uh, it's uh, it's everything that you learn about it that makes it a communal experience and um, and you you know, your career has been full of those type of moments. But uh, I really appreciate the time. It's always great to catch up with you and, and thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Sarah Wilgrub and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast